Freedom Hut. It is the anniversary of 9-11. Have we won the war on terrorism? Mueller's team wiped or lost 27 phones. Totally clear. Biden spokesman tries to duck low the question. The NFL protests and is met with boos. And Lululemon wants you to resist capitalism. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Honored to have you here with me. As we all know, today is a day that we'll always remember as a country. I know there's a lot of people sharing their personal memories. I'll, I'll tell you about some of mine over the course of today, uh, but it changed many lives. We lost many lives, and it also altered the course of the entire world. Right? The, the future of the planet was changed on this day Back on September 11th, 2001, 19, 19 years have have passed. And obviously it has been a, a series of events that led up to this and then after it that we have had to confront that we know of as the war on terror. And I have to say, those who told us that we would never have a signing on the deck of the aircraft carrier to signal the end of this we're correct there hasn't been a day in which we would say that the war on terror is over because the war on terror will never be over there's no such thing Uh, terror is a tactic that stretches back for as long as there's been human society of any kind people use violence and fear for their own advantage for the acquisition of power but if we're talking about radical jihadism and you could obviously argue there is no other form of jihadism uh, then you could also look at what's happened in the most uh, in most recent iterations of this conflict and say we basically have one we have defeated for now i'm not saying it won't be resurgent remember we def- the allies defeated germany in world war one and then there was world war ii we could see a resurgence of this it's not over in that sense but I, I remember what it was like. I remember being in the CIA and people talking about how we were going to be fighting in Iraq for as long as the Lebanese Civil War went on, which was 15 years. We have been in Afghanistan, although not in continuous fighting uh, the same way as, as you've seen in other conflicts. We've been in Afghanistan now for 20 years, basically, almost 19 years. And. The country has learned some very painful lessons in this whole process. But while we're all being instructed by the media to panic over COVID. Just remember that there were also many times when they wanted us to panic even more than was vaguely necessary over the threat of of jihadism. Uh, There were all of the remember the color coding system, uh, the creation of the TSA, so many of these things. That now we look back on and say, what well, what were we doing? The creation of the National Counterterrorism Center, the director of National Intelligence Office, the DNI. Do we need any of that? Did we really fix the problems of stovepiping of intelligence between the various agencies and the lack of sharing with the FBI, the CIA and and the other 
three-letter and assorted agencies of the federal government and the national security apparatus? Those are questions that no one can definitively answer, but the good news is, and I think that we should spend some time on that, the good news is that we are in a period here of relative calm when it comes to jihadism. After multiple wars, after innumerable covert operations and black ops insertions abroad, we have managed to temporarily at least neutralize most of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And President Trump does not get nearly enough credit from this, and he won't. But the roll-up of ISIS, I mean, the, the rapid collapse and the taking of Raqqa, that was something that we were told, even under the Obama administration, would be far more costly, far more difficult. Because Obama wasn't somebody who was really leading on any national security issue. He was always looking for consensus. And consensus, when you're talking about battlefield tactics, when you're talking about fighting against committed radicals willing to lose their lives, is often just too slow or just wrong. The Obama administration, you'll recall, was marked with many mass casualty terrorist attacks in Europe and here in the United States. We've seen far less of that. You think of the mass casualty attacks in the name of the Islamic State, San Bernardino attack, Pulse nightclub in Florida. Uh, there were, there were the first year of the Obama presidency, people often forget this, but there was Farouk Abdul-Muttalib, the so-called underwear bomber. And while it did seem so ridiculous to everyone, this guy lit himself, in effect, on fire and almost blew himself away, including you know, his most sensitive areas. He did almost bring down that plane, which would have killed over 100 people over Detroit on Christmas Day in the first year of the Obama presidency. We were just lucky that he was unable to ignite that device. And then there was Faisal Shahzad in Times Square, the Times Square bomber. Another time when if he had just been a little bit more competent in his bomb building, he would have easily killed dozens, perhaps over 100 people in Times Square on a beautiful day in New York City, not far from when I was sitting as the bomb went off. We've had vehicle attacks, including here on the west side uh, of Manhattan and Chelsea. We've had attacks in cities across the country. It's hard to remember all of them. But it has calmed down quite a bit. It, it turned out that trying to appease radical Islam, that going around the world bowing and apologizing for America was not an effective national security strategy. That was not going to do it. And President Trump in office has been a necessary corrective to that. What are the things that I remember most from 9-11? And those of you who have been listening to me for years now, and I'm very honored when I think about the fact that there are so many of you across the country in all 50 states now who have spent at least a portion of your day five days a week with me going on now seven years. Uh, what do I remember? Some of you will know these anecdotes, but I was in college on 9-11 I was actually going to Shakespeare class. I was studying Shakespeare in college, as one does. I had been in three Arabic classes, I think, 
in advance of this because I was already interested in the Middle East. I had managed to maneuver my way into an upper level uh, senior, generally a seniors only seminar on Arab Israeli conflict. And I just thought it would be an interesting area to specialize in. And then 9 11 happened, and all of a sudden, the recognition, as we found out more about what happened that day, that we were going to go to war and who knows for how long and with how many different groups, perhaps even countries. I remember going back to my dorm, uh, going back to my dorm and watching on TV and seeing the second plane hit because we were excused right away from class after the first plane hit. And I, I hope that I remember all this as it is with these kinds of traumatic events. As you know, sometimes people can have timeline errors. But I, I remember very clearly seeing as the second plane hit and the recognition that now this was was obviously an attack. This was no accident. When I first sat down, as everyone else, I think, or mostly believed, the initial impression was that this was just a tragic accident. But then we figured out very quickly that it was an insidious mass casualty attack. And I watched as the towers fell one after the other. I remember thinking how many people I might know in those buildings. The husband of my mother's sister, my uncle through marriage, working in one of the towers. He was late to work that way, otherwise, late to work that day, otherwise he'd be gone. And I remember recognizing and saying out loud, we are going to war. Changed the course of my life. Otherwise, I likely would have been someone who went to work on Wall Street or management consulting or something try to find my way to enough success and comfort that I could get a decent house in the suburbs, find a nice wife, and call it a day. Instead, I joined the CIA, got assigned to the Counterterrorism Center, went to Iraq, northern Iraq, when it was a particularly spicy area of the country in 2007, went back to central Iraq in 2008, deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, and came home from that and worked for the NYPD Intelligence Division. Came in right after the uh, uh, Najib Bulazazi attack and then was assigned to the NYPD task force working the Faisal Shahzad case, the Times Square bomber, among other averted uh, attacks that we worked on during my time there. So it obviously changed the course of my life, but I was very lucky in that I didn't have any family members lost. And I know so many of you did. I was very lucky that I wasn't a fireman or a, a, a member of the NYPD or a, a flight attendant on one of those flights or a pilot or someone working in the Pentagon that day. What did we learn from 9-11 as a country? One thing is that evil exists, and if it can catch you sleeping, it will. You have to be ever vigilant because there will be evil forces at work in this world. No matter how powerful, wealthy, successful we are as a nation, there will be those ideologies those beliefs those impulses from other human beings to tear us down and destroy us i know it became something of a laugh line among the liberal left for a while that they hate us for our freedom but the people that drove planes into those buildings did in fact hate us for our freedom and their comrades and colleagues today haven't changed their ideological predispositions at all. They're absolutely in agreement with that, that if they could destroy us as a society, they would. And then there are those within our own country 
who you would think would have rallied to our side, you would think would understand the stakes and would stop rooting against us because of their own narrow parochial interests or their, their desire to always be proven right as domestic radicals who want to see this country brought low and then transformed, they still are very much here as well. One of my strongest memories from 9-11 was the gathering, the only all-school gathering that I can remember having when I was at Amherst College, pretty left-wing place in central Massachusetts in the Pioneer Valley. I remember a professor standing up before the whole student body and saying, this is what happens when you make people angry. You see, to a certain kind of left-wing intellectual, to a certain kind of, let's just say it, radical Democrat, socialist, Marxist, America actually got what it deserved that day. There were people who were saying that then. We remember this. That this was a response to our foreign policy. There were academics who said this. There were journalists who believed this. Maybe they waited a while to write such things or say things out loud, but there was that belief. There was a flag burning on my campus within weeks of 9-11. Explicitly, these were students explicitly going forward to say that we got what we deserved. So while we can all talk about our unity, and we should because the vast majority of Americans, yes, including our, our uh, fellow Americans who are Democrats, a vast majority recognize what the, the gravity of the situation was and rallied to our flag and rallied to our country. And we should remember that. But there was an element within our own borders that saw what happened, that saw us attacked in this particularly dire and vulnerable moment and thought, this is something that we can work with. This will be advantageous for us. And you even see some elements of that still today. Don't ever forget there are enemies, foreign and domestic. That's one of the lessons we should take from 9-11 because neither of them have gone away. As much progress as, as we've made and as many sacrifices as our military, law enforcement, and first responders have engaged in over the last almost 20 years you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast why in god's name is all buildings matter trending on social media right now what 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 the heck are people thinking what what is wrong with people all buildings matter. They, they think that this is clever now. Oh, OK, because BLM is is similar in its gravity and seriousness to almost 3000 Americans being either incinerated or crushed to death in a terrorist attack on all of us, including black and brown Americans, including people who are black and brown who weren't Americans, who were uh, visiting that day, who were foreign nationals. It was an attack on all of us, but we can't even expect true unity in this country on a day like this because the BLM lunatics want to pretend that this is of similar gravity and seriousness, that incidents like the Michael Brown shooting are 
to be thought of in the in at the same level, the same categorization of seriousness as as the 9-11 attack. BLM is an intellectually and morally unserious movement. You see, you have to remember that. People don't want to hear that. And of course, anybody in the movement would go into a fit of apoplexy. They would lose their minds if you said that to them. But it's true. It's true. If they were serious, they wouldn't do these things. They wouldn't say and support these things. The trend started because a Black Lives Matter supporter wrote on Twitter, 9-11 is sad, but let's remember that all buildings matter. Um, And in response to the attention the tweet received, according to Newsweek here, so there was there was follow up to this anyway. Uh, so hashtag all buildings matter has now is now the number one trending Twitter thing in the world because the the crybabies of the BLM movement. Listen to us. We don't really have arguments, but if you don't listen, we'll scream in your face and we'll burn down your building. I've listened when they say that police are racist and killing black people regularly in large numbers, systematically without consequence. They're lying. So I've listened. It's not true. What else am I supposed to listen to exactly? But you see, they use disrespect to what is sacred to reasonable people to get attention for what is exaggerated in the minds of brainwashed people. 9-11 is a day that affected the entire country. It's a day where the forces of evil killed almost 3,000 of us, and if they could have, would have killed 3 million of us in one day. Oh, but the BLM activists want to compare it to eight people who are unarmed, doesn't mean unthreatening, shot eight black Americans. It's, it's always the focus on black Americans who were shot. You know, there was a, a kid who had uh, autism who was shot recently, a white kid, 13 years old, running, his mother says, and shot by police, wasn't killed. No protests about that. Uh, So I I guess it it doesn't matter as much to these activists. No, of course not. It does not matter as much to them. But just remember, they're showing you the BLM activists, the BLM movement, the Democrat Party, the Biden voters, the left. They're showing you who they are right now with this all buildings matter. That's right. Slapping America in the face on this most solemn of days. That's just what the left is all about. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's talk policy as we think about the greatest threats this country faces right now. Our single biggest threat as, as a nation right now is internal political division. That can spiral out of control. That can pull us apart. It can undermine any of our institutions, a phrase the libs love to use about Trump as they are constantly undermining institutions. It can pull apart our law enforcement, pull apart our elections. It can make us think that the entire system is corrupt in ways that are unfixable. If you're wondering what's our biggest external enemy, Until recently, I would have said it was jihadism, Uh, radical Islam as an ideology meant to confront Western American Judeo-Christian civilization. Right. That's and it was it was existential insofar as if they could have wiped us out, they would have, but they couldn't. And now they've lost 
so many fighters and so many battles and spend so many and use so much of their resources. We always focus on the drain from America, which, of course, we should of blood and treasure into these conflicts. But remember that it's not an endless flow of committed fighters on the other side either, especially as we don't get involved in places where we don't need to be. Let local conflicts remain local outside of our own borders to the extent that we can. It's a lesson we've learned. Look, I, I was somebody who thought the Bush administration with Rumsfeld and Cheney and, and these uh, all these very powerful neocon think tanks in D.C. and the Pentagon policy planners like uh, Wolfowitz. I remember at dinner with Wolfowitz once, uh, lunch actually, deeply unimpressive guy. But anyway, he wouldn't remember I would because I sat, sat there thinking, this is the guy who's the architect of all this stuff? And it was when he was still Wolfowitz. But we've learned lessons from those mistakes, I, I think. And we understand that it is, there's nothing conservative about sending our own people to go rebuild societies for other people who are not Americans and not even necessarily in allied countries. But if you're wondering what's the biggest threat we face now as a country external to this nation, it would be China. And the president knows this. The president is right about this. He has been all along. And I think everyone's waking up to it. When I visited China a year ago, a little over a year ago now, I remember thinking, this is, this is not a place that is looking to do its own thing and just be prosperous and be left alone. This is a, this is a massive country with over a billion people that is ruled with an iron fist, that has no real concept or care for, for human rights. I mean, from the government level, for human rights, individual dignity, rule of law, and will enforce its, enforce its will upon people. And a lot of Chinese nationals will go along with all of this because glory, the national pursuit of glory, can be a very powerful elixir. And even uh, people who are just working, even just laborers, people doing the mo most mundane jobs, if they believe that they're membership if you will in a nationality in a nation state family makes them more powerful makes them part of something important there's a lot there's a lot that that ruling body that that government can do can get away with so china is our biggest opponent economically and give it time it will also be militarily i'm certainly hoping that we never go head to head in a direct conflict with china that would be it would be catastrophic in ways that it's hard to even imagine i mean it would the, the casualty rates I, I i've seen some of the the war gaming on this and it's horrible but it might be more along the lines of the fight for influence first on the chinese national uh, periphery so the various countries that it bumps up uh, bumps up against right now india russia the literal states you know the island nation uh, island nations and uh, countries that have island chains as a major part of their geography, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, South Korea. How does China interact with all of them? And is it able to flip them to China's side in what is going to become a great power struggle along the lines of what we saw between the U.S. and the Soviet Union? That's what we're heading for now. Anyone who would study history would see this coming. And we know that this is the trajectory we're on. So China is the biggest external threat. Can we all agree on that?
I mean, it's 9-11. We, we, we should remember ignoring a growing threat can have catastrophic consequences, as it did on that day. So wouldn't it be in our interest as a nation to understand now, to, to, to turn and face the likeliest place? We don't always know. We're not always right, obviously. But the likeliest place where a major strategic level threat to this country comes from. Anyone who knows foreign policy, anything about the military, national security, international relations, knows that it's got to be China, right? Apparently not. What do you think the libs believe is the biggest nation-state threat we face, or nation-state-level threat? What, what, what could end us as a society if we don't rise to the challenge? Here's the former head of the Department of Homeland Security under the Obama administration, Jay Johnson, with an answer. Play three. Joe, I have to say the number one threat to our nation and to our world is global warming. And it's a threat, as we see in California right now, and it's a threat because we are failing to address it. As Barack Obama used to say, it is a slow motion emergency. And unfortunately, our political leaders always deal with the thing that is on the top of their inbox. This has been a crisis for some time now that we are failing to address. And we're seeing the evidence of it uh, more and more year after year. Global warming. The biggest threat we face. You see the way they're talking about these wildfires in Oregon and in California. I actually just had someone, a listener, reach out and say that uh, she's in a place where they might have to be evacuated because of the wildfires. I know it's it's very serious, whether it's wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes. It's always climate change or or as Jay Johnson says, global warming. But I thought we didn't call it that anymore. Can we can we just be clear on what the, the proper name is for this scientific phenomenon that they say is the greatest national security threat, the biggest threat we face? Climate change, CO2 in the air. You're breathing out CO2 right now. The biggest threat we face as a country, as a species, is too much of that in the air, in the atmosphere. Um, We live in a time of mass media combined with mass hysteria, friends, and the results are not good. Doesn't strike me as plausible that somebody who has not been pressured brainwashed over time could really think that the biggest threat that we face is climate change. There's a lot of other stuff out there. We've got countries with nuclear weapons. We've got nation states that were supposed to liberalize as they became enormously powerful and populous. It's not happening. We have a resurgence of Marxism in our own country as well as in some countries abroad. And we're told the biggest, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, which if you go back in this show, people asked, I remember it was last summer, I was almost exactly a year ago, so that somebody asked Buck, what really worries you? And I said, pandemic disease. And that's true. You can go back and check the transcript. I said it because it was, I, I knew I'd seen the modeling that we would eventually be in a place where we are right now. In fact, we could have been through something much, much worse. But now they tell us that with all the things that we face, with all the challenges we see, climate change. That's right. What's really going to ruin us is if you don't 
turn off your air conditioners and let your house get to be about 80 degrees during a heat wave. Uh, What's really going to ruin us is if you don't bicycle enough, if you drive a car that's not an electric car, if you think that you should have enough power and not pay five times the current rate for it to run your appliances and your TV. And why are they opposed to nuclear energy? Because nuclear energy is the solution, the technological solution that we already have to all of this. But then that makes their whole windmills and solar power obsession obsolete. So it's not about science. It's about belief and it's about control. You see it with climate change. You also see it with COVID-19. So let's just all remember this. Here we are in 9-11. We remember those who lost their lives. We remember the dead. We remember the bravery of men and women that day. And then we remember the millions of Americans who took up arms and joined our military, went overseas, served in this war on terror. And while the strategy wasn't always perfect, our military acquitted itself with unbelievable bravery, dignity, and success. And we took out so many of the worst psychopathic scum on the planet in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries in the region. And after all that, we turn around now and we are in what will soon again be as we get past this disease a Pax Americana, P-A-X, not P-O-X. And the liberals want to focus on CO2 in the air. Mass hysteria, friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. How desperate are the Democrats right now to defeat Donald Trump. But what are they willing to do? I can't give you a real uh, I can't give you a real answer to the question. I don't think anyone can. Because there's still so many weeks left and whatever I think would be the outer limit of their insanity, I'm sure they're going to exceed those outer limits. But one storyline, one one claim that you'll continue to hear is not that President Trump was not great on COVID or missed some things on COVID. They have gone so far beyond that, which I think is also wrong, but they've gone so far beyond that that they will now openly claim that President Trump is directly responsible for the almost 200,000 deaths from COVID-19. This is is absolutely nuts. Here is Chuck Schumer, among the most odious members of the United States Congress. Play six. There are thousands of my fellow New Yorkers who are dead right now, and it can be directly attributed to the president's uh, lack of action lying about this crisis. No question about it. That's why we don't have testing. That's why we're not we're, we are not on top of this, because he swept it under the rug. On January 26th, I called for the president to call, make it a national emergency. January 26th, he did nothing for a month. What was he supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? And they never answer this question. Uh, it's never clear. He, he was going to lock down the country before anyone had died here. That was the plan. It's easy to say now, well, yeah, we should have done that. But would people have gone along with it? 
would the public have listened? They don't have the resources to enforce all this stuff. I mean, they even here in New York, which has turned into a little tyranny of stupidity because of Cuomo and de Blasio, even here in New York City, they, they can't tell if you're quarantining or where you're going or what. They have no idea. And they've got a lot of resources here, a lot of a lot of government bureaucrats to order around huge police force, which should not be involved in you know, mask enforcement or social distancing enforcement. But that's what they like to do. They like to order them to be their own little social distancing Stasi. Eli Lake tweeted out today, 675,000 Americans were killed during the Spanish flu pandemic. Some of those deaths may have been avoided if Woodrow Wilson bothered to say anything about it. But no one serious, says President Wilson, killed 675,000 Americans because it's moronic. Exactly. President Trump hasn't killed anybody. There's no order you can point to that shows that President Trump put people in. He they said we don't have enough ventilators. President Trump used the Defense Production Act, got enough ventilators. We don't have enough PPE. Defense Production Act got everybody the PPE they need. We don't have enough hospital beds. Sent a hospital ship up here to New York. Saw it float by on the Hudson River. Set up hospital tents in Central Park. Turned the Javits Convention Center into a multi-thousand bed facility. Didn't even really use any of this stuff because they didn't need all these beds. But where was Trump asleep at the wheel? Where was the falling down on the job? Oh, because he said they're always so obsessed, fixated. They'll find some phrase, something that he said at some point in time that isn't even tied to any action and say, see, he said that thing. And that wasn't that wasn't accurate. And so everything else that happened after that is his fault. These people are absolutely nuts. They'll say anything. Joe Biden, of course, has to read from the script here. And I don't really mean that as I mean that as a term of art. I mean, he's reading from scripts a lot. Here he is on how it's all the president's fault. Play 24. On the day that we hit 190,000 dead in the United States because of COVID-19, we just learned from the Washington Post columnist Bob Woodward that the president of the United States has admitted on tape in February he knew about COVID-19 that had passed through the air. He knew how deadly it was. It was much more deadly than the flu. He knew and purposely played it down. Worse, he lied to the American people. He knowingly and willingly lied about the threat it posed to the country for months. He had the information. He knew how dangerous it was. And while this deadly disease ripped through our nation, he failed to do his job on purpose. It was a life and death betrayal of the American people. He failed to do his job on purpose? Think about how stupid that is as a claim. Why would he fail to do his job on purpose, Joe Biden, you moron? What benefit would the president have from doing? Just put aside whether that's even a true claim. They will say anything. It doesn't matter. They'll lie. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I really think that journos are the worst people in America. I mean, as a profession, I mean, there are worse individual human beings. Yes. You know, mass murderers, child molesters are worse than your average journalist. But as a profession, I think journalists are the worst people in America right now for, for a job that's technically legal. 
Uh, they do the most damage. They're the least useful. Here's an example. You're like, fuck, why, why would you think that? John Harwood. Who's this guy work for? Oh, CNN. <laughs> of course. The pandemic is now every week taking twice as many American lives as were lost on 9-11. Uh, okay. Well, what is what is he trying to tell us? Yeah, there, there are people dying from this this disease that's out there, this pandemic. That's real. What, what, what does the comparison with 9-11 tell us? Uh, every year, more people die from, you know, lung cancer than have died in, you know, the, uh, 9-11 times 10. Well, what does that tell us? Nothing. It's, it's irrelevant. But it's all meant to see. It's meant to conflate in people's minds 9-11, asleep at the wheel, hit with a mass casualty attack, gross negligence, Bush administration. Remember, Bush ended up getting reelected after that. Bush administration and Trump hit by the pandemic didn't do didn't do enough. What was he supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? They never have an answer for this. Oh, he lied. He lied. It's all we ever hear. What he, he listened to Fouch. The Fouch said jump. He said how high. The Fouch said I want this. He gave him this. What what was he supposed to do? He allowed the states to set, you know, to set their actual reopen timelines, gave them all of the equipment that he that they could have. We are on track for the fastest ever vaccine ever. Under these kinds of circumstances, because of Operation Warp Speed, what, what's the president going to do? He's not responsible for COVID-19. OK, this is a once once in a century. Well, some people would say actually the flu of 1968 to 1970 was similar to this. But you know, this is a very rare event. And to put it at the president's feet without giving any specifics. Yeah. Are there things? Why, why do I? criticize Cuomo, the governor of New York, so much. But I say, well, you can't put it on Trump's feet because Cuomo not only has locked the city down much longer than he said he would based on the numbers they put forward. You know, they said, you get to this and we'll let you have your lives back. And we got to that level of low infection. We got to that control of the disease. They said, yeah, no, still not giving you your lives back. Still going to tell you what you can do because we say so. But that's not even the worst thing. As we know, the worst thing that Cuomo did was making a decision because he was so panicked and so, you know, hyperventilating, if you will, about the lack of hospital beds that anyone with COVID who was a senior from a nursing home in a hospital, if they could be discharged, uh, even if they had the disease still, got sent back into nursing homes. That is that is a decision that is cause and effect. You send covid positive people back into nursing homes. People in the nursing home, because they're the highest risk for death from this, are going to die. That is what happened. That's a very clear cause and effect. I'm not sitting here throwing out some allegation. Oh, we can't really know. And who don't know. And that's why Cuomo is now blocking, doing everything he can to block an actual investigation into this. Someone on the left, if they're going to continue to say that Trump is responsible for 200,000 people dying, someone on the left needs to tell me what was he supposed to do? 
what was going to be the different thing that he was going to do. And I, I never hear this. He said it was going to go away. We've already talked. He was trying to keep people calm. If we're going to be so literal, it is going to go away. He didn't say when. But he was trying to peep, you know, keep people calm. What was he? What, you know, he listened. They kept saying he doesn't listen to the experts. Burks and Fauci. Burks and Fauci have been essentially the most powerful policy officials in the United States for the last seven months. And I think that's bad. I don't think we should have ceded all of that to those two. But that's what happened. That's what happened. Burks and Fauci running the United States. Pretty much. And now what do they say? Well, now they claim that the president himself is responsible for all of these deaths. The president himself is the reason that people have been dying from this. Oh, and the other Cuomo, bro Cuomo, the weightlifter, over at CNN is, is now uh, goading Trump's base over this because he lies and, and we don't even care. We're too dumb to know or whatever it is. I mean, CNN's full of morons. Play nine. He wants people weak. Yeah. He wants them weak and scared. And what hurts most in this tape and him telling his own people not to wear masks when he knew he was exposing them to danger is that he's humiliated his own base. These people who are right to feel disaffected and frustrated and so angry at the political process and the institutions that they went with someone as much of a renegade at best as Trump early on. And he's humiliated them mm. with how he uses the office. That's rough. Second, he's still doing it. He did Michigan tonight. He told them they're rounding the corner or rounding the turn or whatever he mangled. The curve is going like this with yeah. cases in Michigan. And he had another crowd where they weren't wearing masks and masks were optional. And he didn't tell them about masks either. He's still doing it. Just blather. What, what, notice Cuomo here. He's so used to talking and idiot libs thinking, oh, he, he's, he sounds like Cuomo sounds like what a stupid person thinks a smart person sounds like. Oh, he's talking. There are words coming out. He starts out. Trump wants people scared. That was the beginning of that soundbite. Trump wants people scared. And then he gives us this whole explanation of how the base is humiliated. No, we're not. <laughs> I know Trump supporters. He does not. Not humiliated. Not at all. Not even a little bit. And then goes on to say that he's telling them, don't worry, we're bending. So does he want them scared or is he telling them, don't worry? Doesn't matter. Just ah, I hate Trump. Orange man. Bad. That's it. That's actually what the analysis is with a lot of words thrown in there to make it sound like there is a thought process behind any of this. It's it's the equivalent. The the liberal critique of Trump is like watching a baby in a high chair throw its toys on the ground, spit up its peas and start crying all the time. That's the intellectual depth you get from them about the president and why he's so bad. There are real things they could criticize Trump on. And I know some of you don't even like me to mention it. It's almost like I'm giving away the secret. We have not seen a wall finish. We've gotten some of the wall. Fine. We have not seen a health care reform get passed that is free market or more free market based as we were promised. Right. We have not ended the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. I know he's trying. But these are look. Reality is reality. These are things that have not happened that were promised. And 
you know, you can say, well, he's trying, he's going to get there. But those are legitimate grounds of at least critique and debate. But that, it's never that. It's Trump's a traitor. Trump killed 200,000 people. These people are out of their minds. You know, I wasn't running around pretending that Obama was hiding under people's beds and, you know, stealing their children in the middle of the night as you know, like he's some kind of monster out of a movie or something. Look at what they do with Trump. It's insane. Now, a lot of you might think, hold on, it's maybe it's useful to our side that their criticisms are so just maniacal. But what you're also seeing now with BLM and Antifa and the, and the way the left has taken to the streets is that they believe this stuff, though. This isn't just rhetoric for them. They actually think that he's a fascist. They think that they're fighting against the dissolution of America. And then when you ask, what has Trump done that is fascistic? Where is the fascistic impulse of Donald Trump? In fact, most of the fights that he's had with the left have been over letting people have more choice, more freedom, and more legal protection as individuals. Uh, you know, constitutional rights, Second Amendment rights. Look at where is the, they talk about the, the kids, in, kids in cages, which was a complete misrepresentation. That was a scam, by the way. I know this issue very well, traveled to the border multiple times, the whole kids in cages thing with Trump. There were people who were showing up, the overwhelming majority of them not intending to actually go through the asylum process fully, but they were using the loophole of claiming a fake asylum after illegally crossing, not legally, illegally crossing the border to overwhelm the system to be released in the United States interior. It was an illegal immigration scam. And because we hadn't been set up for this before, there were some logistical and facility shortcomings because it's supposed to be for individual males who are crossing the border, not women with their three kids who are skipping the immigration line, which is what was happening. Full stop. And the media was lying to you about this. Oh, they're fleeing MS-13 violence. I guess you could say anybody in Honduras is fleeing MS-13 violence. A lot of it, a lot of it there. Right. But that's not that doesn't qualify you for. Because you come from a country that's in a crappy situation doesn't necessarily mean you actually get asylum. What was the fascistic going back to this? What's the fascistic thing that Trump has done? They don't they don't have an answer. But if you bring that up, they say horrible things, horrible things to you. And what are we all supposed to take from this? You know, what sounds a bit fascistic to me. Politicians mandating that you are physically uncomfortable and that you can be the target of ridicule, of assault, even of action by the state, you know, arrest perhaps, just give it time, for not walking around with a piece of cloth over your mouth. Biden thinks that that's funny. Play 12. I have, I have relatives all over the country and all over the political spectrum. How do you make the argument to a relative I have in Texas who says, yeah, this virus is horrible, but it's not Trump's fault, it's China's fault? Let's assume we'll take both your, both that relative's points. It's China's fault. If it's China's fault, why did Trump praise China? Why did he say how transparent, how transparent Xi Jinping and the Chinese are going to be? Why did he insist that the 44 people we had there, and while I and others are insisting that they go in and be, have access to see really what is happening, to know the detail, why did he not insist on that? And 
the, the virus is not his fault, but the deaths are his fault because he could have done something about it, Jake. I'd say to your uncle, he could have done something about it, but he said nothing. He didn't talk. He said, there's no need for social distancing. Don't bother wearing masks. He actually went so far as to suggest that it was a violation of American freedom to maintain you had to wear a mask. And look what's happened. He didn't do things. What was the thing he was supposed to do? Doesn't matter. Orange man bad. That's all you that's all you're supposed to take away from this. Wearing masks, uh, not a violation of freedom. No, it, it is actually. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Go ahead. That's your that's your call. It's basically a piece of clothing. It's a piece of cloth you put over your mouth. Go for it. I'm not saying, you know, if that makes you feel better. The government mandating this now? What else can the government mandate? Slopes are, in fact, slippery, friends. Where do you think this stops? You think the next time you have a Democrat president with a Democrat majority House and Senate that they're going to play by the rules and obey constitutional restraint? Or are they going to ram whatever they want through, like, I don't know, climate change stuff? And it's a health emergency. It's a gun violence emergency. Got to take in all those guns, all those assault rifles, hand them in and you go to prison. You what you think they won't do that? It's just a question of can they? It's not that they don't want to. They tell us they want to. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Meant to mention this before, but today it broke that Bahrain is another country that's going to normalize ties with Israel. The Bahrain crown prince is going to be in D.C. on Monday, according to White House officials. Another peace deal. Where were all those Obama administration peace deals? Oh, that's right. There was the let's give Iran a lot of money. It's their money, they say. Let's give Iran a lot of Iran a lot of money and send them pallets of cash to pay for hostages they've taken. That's what they did. I'll never forget. I was on CNN with gurgling, gurgling, Nixon and Ford Reagan administration was coming along with planes and what? This is this is the best political analyst over at CNN. I remember back in you know, Watergate and Ford and Nixon, Reagan, Carter, Reagan. And and I was like, guys, they we, we sent them a giant cash payment and they sent us people that were Americans that they were holding illegally as hostages. That is paying for hostage. That is what we did. We paid off the Iranians to release hostages. Uh, we negotiated with terrorists. That is what we did. But they're seeing and they're like, no, the hostages was a separate thing. And the cash just happened to. You know, like ships passing in the night and like a tire with like a baby and like a thing. You know, CNN just blather. Just blather. Doesn't, didn't make any sense. You're like, what? Another, another peace deal for President Trump. Another peace deal here that... Oh, but he's not worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. Obama, you know, Obama was so, so cool, so hip, doing, doing great stuff, right? That's what we were told. And Trump, their hatred for him, they're, they're, the, the criticisms of him aren't even interesting. 
because they're so deranged. The criticisms, uh, criticism of him aren't even worth hearing because it's never it's never illuminating. You're just like, this is the same stuff over and over again. They, they simply they simply don't care. Um, and then you also have, oh, and the, and the economic fallout. This is another thing they're going to blame on the president. Here's uh, here's Joe Biden. Play 23. Well, experts say that if he had acted just just one week sooner, 36,000 people would have been saved. If he acted two weeks sooner back in March, 54,000 lives would have been spared in March and April alone. You know, his failure is not only cost lives. It sent our economy in a tailspin. It cost millions more in American livelihoods. This is a recession created by Donald Trump's negligence. And he is unfit for this job as a consequence. Of- I mean, that's just an intellectually indefensible, dumbass thing to say. Trump created the recession. Really? That's that's what we're going to go with now. Yeah, that's what they're going to go with. Biden is speaking to people like he assumes they're all idiots or they're programmed to just nod and clap for whatever he says. That's it. Biden speaking to human beings across the country like they have no ability to sift through fact from fiction. And and that's really a a very important characteristic for his voter base. This is all about belief, and it's all about what they are told to do and told to think. This is not, this is not, my friends, about a sober, rational judgment on the Trump presidency. Not for Democrats. If it were, they'd be saying very different stuff. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk school reopening, homeschooling, and whether Americans are finally seeing that maybe the public school system not as entirely essential as we had all been led to believe for a very long time. To uh, walk us through all this stuff, we've got our friend Ines Felcher with us now. She's a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. Ines, good to have you back. It's always great to be here with you, Buck. So how are the school reopenings going? What are we seeing? What's happening? Well, we're seeing a lot of chaos. Um, In a lot of districts, the plans weren't released until a week or two ago, in some cases purposely so that it would be difficult for families to make alternative arrangements if they weren't happy with either the remote or hybrid uh, plan that that schools were introducing. So uh, there's been a lot of chaos. Uh, some places are open. Some places are going hybrid, which means you know there's there's rotating schedules once or twice a week, um, in person and the rest remote. And uh, further, uh, the, the one more portion of our nation's schools are are still going fully remote, um, just like they did in the spring. So, how has it been in comparison to what the expectations were for all these plans? Yeah, well, I think parents are very frustrated right now because, um, you know, this pandemic took us all by surprise. We're not talking anymore about the months of March and April. Uh, A lot of families limped through uh, very dissatisfying and ineffective um, distance learning through the spring. But uh, what they're seeing is this year that things are not that different, that schools are not really much more prepared um, than they were in the spring uh, to deliver distance learning effectively. So um, a lot of families are, are looking for alternative arrangements, um, whether that's choosing to, to formally homeschool their kids um, or to join what's called being called pandemic pods, right, to, to join up with a few other families 
um, who have school-aged children, and then to share an in-person tutor or have the parents take on um, rotating duties in terms of, of uh, teaching the children. So we're seeing a lot of innovation, uh, a lot of parent-driven innovation. We're not seeing the school system recognize how badly spring distance learning has failed for most families and then rush to make that up. And instead, we're seeing teachers unions and edit school administrations um, try to close off alternative avenues for parents uh, out of fear that they're going to lose funding. How is the homeschooling surge coming along? Do we have some sense of how many people, new people are homeschooling? And and what's the, I guess there can't really be a consensus, but what are some of the, from the front lines of the homeschooling battles, what are we hearing? Yeah, so we just had a poll come out the other day that showed that one in 10 American families is now homeschooling. And the, the language was very careful. This is not just folks who are adding at home and have their kids somehow otherwise enrolled in a school. These are folks that are formally homeschooling where their children are, are receiving education primarily from home. Um, that's more than double what the normal numbers are. So we've seen homeschooling, formal homeschooling numbers double and potentially uh, even higher than that, because again, this is families. So you've got a lot of families with multiple kids, all of whom are are uh, now being schooled at home. So the percentage of kids might even be up more uh, than that 10%. And then you have all the families that are experimenting with different kinds of alternatives in addition to virtual learning. If parents weren't satisfied with the virtual learning, they're still having their kids, you know, go to go to school um, and be counted on the attendance rosters. But uh, they're either doing pods or um, they're teaching their kids more at home. So I suspect actually the impact is much bigger. But what we have seen is a, a drastic drawdown in enrollment numbers from 83 percent. This is not including charter schools, actually charter schools. Uh, interestingly, those numbers have held steady, meaning that parents are relatively satisfied with what they're deliver, um, getting from charter schools as opposed to traditional public um, schools. But um, in the traditional publics, we've gone down from 83% of American students being enrolled in traditional public schools to 76. I mean, that's that's an earthquake. Um, and, and it remains to be seen whether this will be a, a one-year thing in response to the coronavirus. I suspect it will have a long-term cultural impact uh, and hopefully will change the education system for the better. How are the uh, teachers' unions fighting back against this? I, I've seen some stories here and there about efforts to, to make homeschooling either more difficult or just not allowed? What's going on with that? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely been pushback from districts, again, trying to close off those alternative options for parents who are not satisfied with what they're getting from the public schools. Instead of trying to improve what they're delivering to parents, public schools oftentimes, and especially teachers unions, have gone out of their way to try to foreclose other options. So, for example, in states like Oregon and Pennsylvania, um, they've been pushing the unions have been pushing the state legislatures to cap enrollment in virtual charter schools that already existed. Uh, these are charter schools that are used to delivering content online, um, and, and they've been doing so for many years prior to the pandemic. Uh, and it just makes sense to you know learn from them and to, to let them increase in enrollment. But teachers unions have tried to close off those options. They've also sent uh, th there was one principal in, in a San Diego district that sent out a message to parents, basically warning them that um, if they didn't jump through all the correct hoops uh, it, it, in terms of registering their their students as homeschoolers, then what they would be doing is illegal. Um, I highly recommend a Homeschool Legal Defense Association if you're considering homeschooling. Um, the, their membership, I think, is like 11 bucks a year, and they have all of the legal information so you can make sure to 
cross your T's and dot your I's, but this was obviously an attempt from a San Diego principal to try to discourage families from homeschooling, and it ended with an appeal, please, please don't don't leave our school, our staff salaries depend uh, on you enrolling, which of course the purpose of the $700 billion we spend every year uh, in education is supposed to be for educating children. It's not just supposed to be staff salaries for adults in empty buildings. You know, as oh, actually, and let me just add one more one more thing. Um, what we're seeing is is the rise of these NDAs, uh, the the non disclosure agreements for for families that are receiving virtual learning. They're getting legal documents from the school saying that parents are either not allowed to sit in on those classes and to watch the content their kids are learning, or if they do, they're not allowed to share that content because we're seeing that pop up. Um, on Twitter and, you know, Tucker Carlson, we're seeing some of these examples of what kids are actually learning in schools for the first time. This is the first time for a lot of parents they are actually seeing this material and they are not pleased. And schools are trying to get around that backlash by forcing families to sign non-disclosure agreements. Uh, Inez, before we let you go, and uh, it's Inez Felcher from uh, the Independent Women's Forum, or she's a senior policy analyst. For people listening to this who are either maybe just starting or thinking about homeschooling their kids, but but they might have this thought of, am I doing it right? Can I, I, I mean, look, I would think, am I in a position, if I had kids, which I don't, but am I in a position to homeschool my kids? Do I know how to do this? Where can those parents go? Um, like I said, HSLDA is a great resource, but also uh, my organization, IWF, we've done a number of blog posts from homeschooling families who are homeschooling before the pandemic with tips and tricks. Um, and, and there's been a lot of that, especially um, the Daily Signal over at Heritage Foundation has had some some great events. Um, Heritage Foundation itself has put together events from families that are doing potting or homeschooling before, basically uh, giving those those uh, those sort of advice and, and tricks and, and um, recommending curriculum and materials. Uh, there's a lot of this stuff out there online. It can feel overwhelming, but I think the number one thing to keep in mind is, is that you're not replicating school at home. Um, it, it, it actually is a much more relaxed, many families find it to be a much more relaxed environment. They find they can get through um, the, the kind of academic material in a much smaller number of hours than sending your kids off to school for seven or eight hours and then having them come back at, uh, to home to do two or three more hours of homework. Um, and a lot of families are finding actually, especially in comparison to the chaos um, that's happening across the public schools today, that actually uh, homeschooling is, is a more relaxing option. And, and I feel like perhaps uh, a weight has been lifted off of their backs rather than frantically trying to keep up with whatever the, the schedule of the week is um, the, with virtual learning. Have you ever heard Michael Malice say that he says this often, public schools are prisons for children? Have you ever heard that? <laughs> I'm just wondering if you come across I, him. I haven't. It, it didn't originate with him. Yeah. Really? Uh, someone, I've never heard anyone else say that. Where'd that originate? I don't know, but I've been hearing it for like well over a decade. So it's, it's what do you think? online nowadays. I, I don't, I don't think public schools are prisons. I actually think, you know, originally the public school system, I'm, I'm of two minds as to the history of the public school system, the common schools in the United States. Um, on the one hand, they did centralized education in a way I think was negative for the country. But they also did create some kind of community bonds um, between folks. And actually, this is one of the last community, you know, sort of centers that a lot of American towns have. People gather for, for um, you know, football games on Friday. They do provide a lot of this community glue, and I don't want to downplay the importance of that. Unfortunately, it can't come at the expense of education. The, the, it's there all the socialization aspects and the community aspects. Those are all wonderful and important. But first and foremost, 
you know, education has to be about education. Uh, and both in terms of, of just academics and, and not delivering, uh, you know, academic results year after year, the public schools have failed. And then I think even more importantly, they've, they've really failed to equip now two generations, mine and, and um, yours, I assume, the millennials, you might be an ex ennial. Whoa, whoa, uh, hey, hey, hold on. I'm, 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 a, I'm an old millennial, yeah. Um, but uh, our generation and then the generation that's coming after us, uh, they've totally failed to equip us as a generation with the knowledge of being a good American citizen, to understand uh, our founding, to understand our constitution, our way of life um, here in America. And instead, they've, they've largely inculcated false beliefs about America being systemically racist. And we're, we're seeing the results um, of, of teaching, broadly teaching these myths, these dangerous myths today, I think, in, in the riots and the unrest. So uh, I don't think the public schools have done a bang up job, even though they do. Uh, I wouldn't call them prisons. I do think they provide some community aspects that are important. But uh, those, those community aspects cannot outweigh the importance of education and citizenship. Ines Felcher, everybody. Ines, thanks so much for joining. Always good to see you. It's always great to see you, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You know how you become famous as a journo? Accuse Trump of something bad. And if you just want to score a whole bunch of points and get social media followers, say that he's a liar. Say in the West Wing of the White House that the president of the United States is a liar. Play clip 18. Why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you have to say That's now? A terrible question and the phraseology. I didn't lie. What I said is we have to be calm. We can't be panicked. Uh, I knew that the tapes were these were a series of phone calls that we had mostly phone calls. And uh, Bob Woodward is somebody that uh, I respect just from hearing the name for many, many years not knowing too much about his work and not caring about his work. But I thought it would be interesting to talk to him for a period of, you know, calls. So we did that. I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't even know if the book is good or bad. But uh, certainly if uh, he thought that was a bad statement, he would have reported it because he thinks that, you know, you don't want to have anybody that uh, is going to suffer medically because of some fact. And he didn't report it because he didn't think it was bad. Nobody thought it was bad. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And your question, the way you phrase that is such a disgrace. It's a disgrace to ABC Television Network. It's a disgrace to your employer. Yep, it is. I pointed out that Obama lied to the entire American people. I mean, really lied. If you like your health care plan, you can keep it. He lied to get something passed through the Congress that he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. He knew it was a lie when he said it. He repeated it tons of times. It affected a lot of people. Cause and effect. Do you think that Jonathan Carl ever said, why did you lie? Oh, I'm sure fake Tapper was like, sir, uh, did you... um, Did you feel like you perhaps misled, maybe a little unintentionally, but misled the American people? Was there a lack of candor when you... Jonathan Carl's like, why'd you lie? It's a very different things, right? If you go up to somebody and you say, hey, Bob, you know, you said you were going to hand in your TPS report yesterday and uh, there was no TPS report. You know, you think maybe you misspoke on that one. That's one thing. If you want to be, hey, Bob, you're a TPS report not doing liar. Very different, right? It's about respect. 
It's about decorum. It's about a show of decency. But if you want to be a famous journo and you're or a more famous journal, all you have to do is attack uh, Trump in some way. And, and everyone thinks that you're such a great guy. But sometimes these days you have, uh, I think, a recognition that Joe Biden can't get this thing done. The more people see him out there, the more they recognize that this guy is just unable to do it. Unable to do it. And that his best plan for America so far is that he's going to take more of your money. Play 13. What I'm talking about is no one making under $400,000 a year will pay a single increase in taxes. I have a list here of the taxes we're going to change to make sure that everybody pays their fair share. You realize there's 19 of the Fortune 500 companies don't pay a single penny in tax, not one single penny in taxes, that people making in the top one for by the time the tax cut, the 10 years runs out, middle class taxes are going to go up even higher under Trump's tax bill, and the wealthier are going to get even more wealthy. I'm not trying to punish anybody. But no, I get it, but pay. when would you make these changes, is my point, because the economy is in a bad state right now. You wouldn't, I mean, would you wait for unemployment oh, to go under 2%? No, 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 no. I'd, I'd make the changes on the corporate taxes on day one. And the reason I'd make the change on corporate taxes, it can raise $1.3 trillion if they just start paying at 28% instead of 21%. And what's, what are they doing? They're not hiring more people. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. Not very smart, never has been very smart, not very successful, other than just in getting elected a senator from Delaware. No offense to any of our beloved Delaware listeners, but it is like, you know, becoming the mayor of Schenectady. It's not that big a deal to be a senator from a state of the size and and political importance. Again, beautiful beaches. I like Delaware, but it's a different deal when you're talking about whether we're supposed to be impressed by Joe Biden's political career there. But Trump understands that there's a weakness here. Trump understands that the libs, they're just the weekend at Bernie's candidacy has some cracks in it. There are some problems. Play 17. As we continue to follow the science-based approach to protect our people and vanquish the virus, Joe Biden continues to use the pandemic for political gain. Every time I see him, he starts talking about the pandemic. He's reading it off a teleprompter. I'm not allowed to use a teleprompter. Why is that, Phil? They ask questions and he starts reading the teleprompter. He says, move the teleprompter a little bit closer, please. I don't know. I think if I did that, I'd be in big trouble. I think that would be that would be the story of the year. I think the president's right, and I think he knows Biden's being propped up. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Biden's spokesperson for the campaign, who looks like Pajama Boy. So Pajama Boy's got a new gig. His name is Ducklow, TJ Ducklow. And one thing's for sure after last night. We all know TJ knows how to duck low the question. Womp, womp. But he, he appeared on TV and Brett Baer, who, look, the guy's, he's, I'm sure he's ideologically a conservative and I think he comes at news from a conservative perspective, but I also think he's, he is fair to Democrat guests. He asks fair questions. He lets people talk. 
he lets them answer. So, you know, if you're going to be a journalist who has a, a point of view, at least the Brett Bear rules, you would think, should apply. And this is how Mr. Ducklow was ducklowing all the things asked of him. This is just one example of it. Play clip two. And with this, has Joe Biden ever used a teleprompter during local interviews or to answer Q&A with supporters? Brett, we are not going to engage. This is this is straight from the Trump campaign. Well, yeah, they're points. using and, it. And what it does and what it does, Brett, is it's trying to distract the American people. I'm just from, they're from, using from it. They the talk pandem- about it every day. Can you well, say yes or no? That's because they talk about it every day, Brett, because they don't have a coherent. Uh, well, you strategy. have an answer. Yes or no, Brett. They talk about it every day because they don't have a coherent argument for why Donald Trump deserves reelection deserves four more years. We know that he lied to the American people. We know that he has not uh, shown leadership during this crisis, and they are desperate to throw anything they can against the wall to try to distract from that fact. I understand, but you can't answer the question. Brett, I am not going to allow the Trump campaign to funnel their questions through Fox News and get me to respond (laughs) to that. Why can't you respond to that, dude? It's not hard. Buck Sexton. Last night, were you robbing a bank? I refuse to answer your question about whether I was robbing a bank last night. No, you can just say, no, man, I was not robbing a bank last night. Now, I understand that you could say something like, well, Buck, what about, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, there are loaded questions that are meant to be an attack. But does Biden use a prompter during local interviews? That's feasible. That's plausible. Is it a yes or no question? Yes or no question, folks. Not hard. But Biden's little buddy here, not a strong showing. Also, I didn't know Michael Knowles had a twin brother. What's going on with that? I like Michael Knowles. I'm just saying. He kind of looks like Michael Knowles a little bit. Michael Knowles, way better looking, of course. Way better looking. But anyway, and also as a patriot, loves America. Uh, We've had Michael on the show a bunch of times. Good dude. Good dude. So Biden himself, though. Really not much better when he's having to answer a real question. You know, you're seeing something here. There's a a Democrat approach to Trump where you can't say that Trump did anything right. You can give no credit. Here's an example. During the Obama administration, when people would say, was it a, if someone had asked a, me or, or a conservative, I think a gen, in general conservatives, was it a good thing that Biden, I'm sorry, that Obama uh, gave the order to take out Osama bin Laden. Yes, you got to say yes. That was the right move. Okay, Obama, you know, that's that's points on the board for Obama. Let's not pretend that things that are good are actually bad just because somebody who does a lot of things we don't like did it. All right. So I think that's that's this is about having a principle. This is about calling things uh, what they are. And then you have on the other side of this. You have Biden um, asked, for example, about trade deals. Now, Trump came into office and we were told, oh, my gosh, he doesn't know anything about trade. He doesn't understand trade. And then everyone who did a little bit of reading on this found out, well, wait a second. NAFTA actually does need to be renegotiated. That, That should happen. Why hasn't that happened? And then Trump came along with the USMCA, which even Nancy Pelosi said was a good thing for the country. 
But when Biden's asked about it, listen to their, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just sort of mumbling stuff and, uh, you know, I'm trying to stay awake and it's not easy. Play clip one. Something else he did is he renegotiated NAFTA. He did. He renegotiated NAFTA. Now, when you ran for president and when Barack Obama ran for president, you both said you would renegotiate NAFTA. You didn't. He did. Nancy Pelosi said that the USMCA, which President Trump signed into law, is a, quote, victory for America's workers. Does he deserve credit for that? No, I think, remember, he didn't, he wasn't the one that pushed that particular one that passed. The House amended the bill, amended the bill so he couldn't. He well, signed that, it. By the way, it's a big deal, though. Here's what he, they amended. He was given pharma a way out, giving them a gigantic break, just like he's doing now with pharma. If you, they're building plants overseas and getting tax, tax breaks for it. That's what it was about with him. And they okay. said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're but not going to do that. He renegotiated NAFTA and you didn't, is the point. I mean, because we had a Republican Congress that wouldn't go along with us renegotiating it. Doesn't he deserve some credit for that? It's better. The USMCA is better than NAFTA. It is better than NAFTA. Fake Tapper occasionally asks a real question. That's, I don't know why everyone's, everyone, oh my gosh, it's so much journalism. I mean, yeah, he, he does ask a real question sometimes. It's true. This guy's still a jerk. Uh, and, and he's still a Democrat operative, but anyway. And notice, it's not a tough question. It's an obvious question. But that for Biden is, a, that's a huge change from what he uh, normally gets. Here's the way, here's the way reporters think they are, making sure this guy is ready, making sure he is battle tested to be the president of the United States at the uh, young age of 78. Here he is. Play four. Really, your strength is in traveling around the country and connecting with people. You can't do any of that right now. Mr. Vice President, does does that worry you? Why isn't Joe Biden angrier about all of this? When you hear these remarks, suckers, losers, what does it tell you about President Trump's soul? I want to ask I want <laughs> What's your take on the Republican convention so far? Do you think wearing a mask projects strength or weakness? Do you think the president of the United States is rooting for the violence because he thinks it helps him politically? You, you think he's actually rooting for violence? I wonder if you worry that this kind of language that comes from the president of the United States could deter some Americans who are tuning into him to not wear masks. How concerned are you that they're going to rush something out even before Election Day? Really hard-hitting stuff there, right? Really difficult. Oh, my gosh. Are you concerned that you're so much better than Trump and, like, he's such an evil monster? I'm sure he is concerned about that, folks. I'm sure that uh, keeps him up all the time. If this guy becomes president, it really does make a mockery of our whole system. It really does make a mockery of it all. It's amazing that here we are, and this is the person that we have in charge. Oh, you know, you know what Democrats uh, don't care about? You. You. Um, because right now they're blocking the COVID relief package that would be very substantial. The bill, as it stands right now, the Republicans would pass $300 weekly unemployment subsidy, $105 billion for schools, $20 billion for farmers, $10 billion for the U.S. Postal Service, $10 billion for child care assistance, $47 billion for vaccines and testing, $258 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program which, as you know, helps small businesses out. It gives them the forgivable loans. 
to pay people that they can't keep on staff right now. And what do you hear from the Democrats over this? Nope. Not enough. Not enough. Unacceptable. Mitch McConnell understands what's going on here. Mitch don't. Cocaine Mitch ain't playing no games. Play 11. Well, the president supports what we're trying to do. Uh, He's behind us. Uh, He would like to tackle these challenges that are clearly necessary to be challenged. tackled and should be done on a bipartisan basis and needs to be done uh, right now. Uh, It makes you believe they really don't want to do another proposal. They want to wait till after the election and play games with this. Uh, What they passed in the House months ago was a $3 trillion wish list of liberal items, including tax cuts for rich people in New York and California. Really, that has nothing to do with COVID-19. Nothing to do with COVID-19, as has been the case with so many of these other games the Democrats have played. Nothing to do with COVID-19, but they don't care that people are suffering and that bad things are happening to them. Oh, speaking of playing games, (sighs) producer Mark, I don't know if that was my smoothest transition, but did you watch any of the NFL last night? Of course I did. So did you see any of the social justice shenanigans that I'm hearing about here? Because I, I did not watch it. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it all shenanigans, so uh, I'll explain exactly what happened to you. Uh, the Texans didn't come out of the locker room until after the national anthem, their choice, so they didn't really do anything. The Chiefs almost all stood to so this 53 members of the roster. One player decided to kneel, and then afterwards um, they decided to come together in the middle of the field, and just do a moment of silence, lock arms, and a moment of unity is what they called it, and the fans booed. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, uh, you don't want them to kneel for the national anthem. They don't, and then you boo them. I thought that was a little in poor taste. Um, they're going to use their platform to try and, and push this social justice thing, no matter what you do. So if you don't want them to kneel, fine. They didn't kneel. Well, one player did. But for the most part, they didn't kneel. Why are you booing them afterwards? I just think you can't have it both ways. You know they're going to do it. You paid money to go see them, and then you boo them um, when they did what you what, what exactly what you didn't want them to do. You didn't want them to kneel. They didn't kneel, and then you still boo them. I thought that was in poor taste. So here we go. Daily Mail headline, NFL fans boo a moment of silence for BLM. The Houston Texans walk out during the anthem, and the Kansas City Chief takes a knee in front of 17,000 supporters at the first game of the new season. Okay, so one Kansas City, I, I think you actually got all that rundown just from the top of your head. Very, yeah. very impressive, mm-hmm. sir. Look one Kansas City Chief took a knee. The Texans, well, well, they walk out during the anthem. Does that mean, so they went in the locker room while the anthem was played and then came out? No, no, no. I think uh, they did their normal pregame warm-ups, and usually both teams go back to the locker room and then come out right before the anthem. They did not come out until after the anthem. Okay. I mean, people are still going to react to that as as being just, you know, look, where I think we're heading is they're just going to get rid of anthems at games because trying to tie patriotism into sports in this way, at least at the NFL and the NBA, uh, there are people who are not going to take kindly to players who are multimillionaire celebrities, you know, multimillionaires in their 20s, mostly, by the way, in 20s and 30s, uh, taking kindly to them thinking that that the country needs to hear their social justice messaging. So I think we're just going to head to they're going to have to get rid of the anthem before the game in some of these places, because otherwise, because even like what you're saying is true. They're they're changing it so that 
okay, well, we're not going to kneel during the anthem, but we're going to, if you do anything during the anthem other than stand there and, and, you know, put your hand over your heart, a lot of Americans are going to be upset about that. I don't think that's going to change. I think I don't mind this thing in the locker room. That's, they're just kind of, they're letting the anthem play and they're not putting any protest in the middle of the anthem. I'm okay with that. And I think everyone should be. They want to get their voices heard, let them and watch sports. Hmm. We'll see. Even I think they what the, the ratings were they were down like double digits, but not huge on the first night from what they would be. But it's covid. It's weird. The world's crazy. So and it wasn't that great of a game, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I try to watch the U.S. Open tennis and, uh, you know, it's not the same without without fans in the stands. I got to say, I never you know, you never thought you'd run this experiment in this way. But there is an energy that transfers even to your home viewing experience of having all those fans there. You know, the it's it's not the same. It's just not the same. And it's weird actually having some fans socially distanced in the stands because now it looks like it almost feels like you're at like a high school game and like there's not that many people there. You know, I was surprised with how much noise they made in Kansas City with only like 15,000 people there. And that building can hold 100. I bet they were. Do you think they were doing some, you know, juicing the audio a little bit for the people at home? They say they weren't. They say they will in the in the like in New York. You're not allowed to have any fans. So they're going to pump in crowd noise for that. They said they did not because there were fans there. Uh Very well. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. All right. I, I have a couple quick stories that I wanted to touch on because I mentioned them at the top of the show and I didn't get to them before. One is that Sweden, before we get to roll call, uh, Sweden has shown their model works. They're at basically the end of the pandemic in terms of infections. Very, very few infections, very, very few deaths. Uh, and now they're, they're doing better than all their neighbors, including Norway right now. And they never shut down. They, they, the head of the Swedish health authority says that wearing masks is kind of a useless thing to do. Sweden's basically through it and did better than a lot of countries around. It's better than the UK, Italy, Spain. No lockdowns. Never lockdown. So someone needs to explain to me why lockdowns are so great or so useful, I should say, when Sweden never did it and got better outcomes than countries that did extreme, including Italy, extreme lockdowns. Okay, so there's that. Because we used to talk about Sweden and there was this whole Sweden is running an experiment in mass death. Sweden is so much worse off these other countries. Nope, wasn't it wasn't true. And if we're interested in the truth, then uh, we should pay attention to what actually happened there and follow up on this. And then also Lululemon. I just thought this was so funny. Lululemon. I would say the Snow Princess is a big fan of Lululemon. And I'm a fan of her in Lululemon. I think the clothing looks looks very nice on ladies. So I'm, I'm not a Lululemon hater. It's like a yoga activewear company. It's worth billions of dollars now. It's become a huge, you know, if you're a mom in the suburbs that likes to do hot yoga, you probably go to the store wearing your Lululemon. You know what I mean? Producer Mark, do you own any Lululemon? I do not. Nor does my wife, I think. Have you ever done yoga? <laughs> I actually have once in a class in college. I hated it. <laughs> I was miserable. If, if there was video 
I would pay for this. Oh, there probably is somewhere. I had friends in the there class. Is it, you know, that it wouldn't be just, I've done yoga a couple times too, and I'm, it's just me the whole time going, ow, it hurts. My back hurts. My neck hurts. You know, I'm not flexible. But uh, producer Mark, you and yoga would be, would be good, good stuff, good times. But, you know, you got to unleash your chi, man. You got to center your chi. I'm good with where my chi is right now. Yeah. <laughs> my chi is going to be on the couch this weekend, eating some Chinese food, watching yeah. some Netflix. I, I'm watching the football on Sunday. I'm not chiing anywhere else. Any good games on Sunday? I usually just put on Red Zone. Oh, you're a Red Zone guy. My brothers are Red Zone. You love just hang just, my brothers. They love yeah. America. They love professional sports, football. They're the normal sex. I'm honestly a little shocked you knew what Red Zone was. Oh, well, because of them. Oh, of They're actually doing a virtual uh, draft tonight for their fantasy league. They did it the day after the season started. Or maybe it was last night they yeah. did it. No, I think they did it this the season opener night. So then they, they already did whatever. Yeah. I, see, I don't even know, but I'm saying they did a virtual draft. I'm guessing you're not invited into the league. No, no, because I don't want I, – I, if I can't get my top NFL pick, Don Mattingly, then I don't want any part of this. Oh, my God. I know. So, oh, but Lululemon, back to Lululemon, they, they sell yoga pants for about – some of you are going to spit your coffee out. They sell yoga pants for about $120, $140 a pair, but they want to teach classes online for Lululemon, uh, you know, customers – about how to resist capitalism. <laughs> That's awesome. Sell your yoga pants for $120, but hashtag resist capitalism. As if anybody didn't already need, or as if anybody didn't already know that so much of this pseudo-Marxist claptrap crap is just about people feeling cool and hip and not thinking through any, any of this at all. But... Uh, I, I'm a, I think yoga pants are a great innovation for the lady. I think they're great. Very comfortable. Very, and also, ladies, you're going to hear this from me, and it's very important. Wear comfortable shoes. Don't, I know there's all this noise. There's all this social pressure out there to tell you this is one of the few things I disagree with my main man Jesse Kelly on because he's all, if you wear flats, you've given up. I think that's not true. We disagree on this. Heels for, you know, for weddings, you know, special occasions, a big party. Heels are for dress up, in my opinion, um, for the late. Now, look, I don't wear heels. Truth. I do not. Fact check true. But I, I know what comfortable shoes are all about. I know that heels are not comfortable. High heels I'm talking about. High heels. Not comfortable. And it drains your energy. I mean, you know, my parents have passed this on to me because they believe in comfortable footwear if there's anything you can take from this show, if there's like one little, oh no, two lessons from this show. Never talk to the FBI and wear comfortable shoes. Those are important. That's worth listening to me three hours a day for the next 10 years or for the past seven years, whatever. That's worth it right there. If you take those two things from me and uh, never start a land war in Asia. Um, I think those are, which I borrow from the Princess Bride, I think is where that, that little quip comes from. Uh, but no, really, the comfortable shoe thing is very, very important. Uh, and so some of you have seen me even doing TV hits. I'll be wearing boat shoes. Not a fashion statement. It's just because they're the most comfortable things I can wear. I just wear the most comfortable shoes I can. Uh, I'm telling you, you're saying, Buck, why are you going to rant about this? It will change your life. I know some of you guys like to wear those lace up, uh, you know, you look the dress shoes. They're all shiny and you look all spiffy. Maybe for a job interview, wedding, funeral, whatever. Not that anyone really, I guess you just wear black. I don't think you have to look spiffy at a funeral. But that's, 
I'm telling you, wear whatever is most comfortable on your feet that you can get away with without it being Crocs, because that's not okay. There are limits. This is not nom. There are rules. All right, Josh, first up in roll call. And remember, if you want to email us, teambuck at iheartmedia.com and facebook.com slash bucksexton if you want to send in messages. And bucksexton on Instagram. You can direct message us. Producer Mark checks it out. Um, I check it out. We're doing all that stuff. So, uh, And if you're not already, please do follow me on Instagram. We're putting more and more content up there all the time. All right. Josh, first up here. It was a Tom Hanks submarine movie released on Apple TV. It was terrible. I love all war movies. Not this one. Really bad. Wow. Bruce and Mark, have you seen this one? I have not. I haven't gotten Apple TV yet. Waiting for I a free trial. On my TV. My TV's too old, so I guess I got to get a new TV. Um, but yeah, the submarine movie, uh, you know, it's... I, I, how can you make a bad submarine movie? That's what I don't understand. It's such an interesting, you know, such an interesting one. Um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. James. Oh, wait, wait, wait but uh, you're talking about, about war movies, Josh. My brothers, I was actually hanging out with my brothers last night. My two brothers. I'm very blessed. I have all three of my siblings here. My little sister is expecting a beautiful baby boy in the next four to six weeks. So she's ready to have the baby come out. So I'm going to be, yes, it is true. I'm going to be Uncle Buck. That's going to be real soon. I'm actually going to be Uncle Buck. And I will be way cooler than the John Candy character who makes them like a garbage pancake or whatever. Do you remember that movie? Of course. You kind of have the physique of Uncle Buck now, too. That's cold, all right? It's one thing to call me Fat <laughs> Thor. It's another thing, you know? I have feelings, too, Producer Mark. <laughs> I'm going to start working. They opened oh. the gym in my building. I'm actually going this weekend. I'm going to do deadlifts, and it's going to be amazing because I'm going to be deadlifting like 30 pounds. Like, ow, my back hurts. Gotta my take it neck slow. hurts. It'll be like me in yoga class all over again. Just, just take it slow at first. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, my gym's open I'm, again, too. Yeah, otherwise, I'm going to be doing the radio show in, like, traction or whatever. I'm going to have, like, uh, you know, a full body cast on. What were you doing? Oh, man, I was trying to bench, like, 40 pounds, and I just threw out my shoulder. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I will tell you, there, there, was a time, there was a time when the Buckster could throw around some pretty serious weight, and it wasn't that long ago, but now he just is carrying some serious weight, which is a different thing. All right, uh, but I'm going to get back into it. Fighting shape. Got to do it. Got to do it. Um... James. Oh, so I was telling about my brothers. I keep going to James. So my brothers asked what about best movies. I actually think Hacksaw Ridge is one of the best movies of the last 10 years, which is a war movie. And I think that maybe in part because I thought that it was going to be corny and I didn't even think it, it didn't win me over until it got a little bit deeper into the movie. And then I was like, wow, I was wrong. This is actually a really good movie. And when you learn the true story about that guy and how why he got the Medal of Honor, I, it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Unlike Midway, which was on last night, and my brothers and I are going to watch it, and then they reminded me that I said that they took an incredibly important pivotal battle in history and made it meh. It's a meh movie. It's like a B minus C plus kind of a movie. Richard Jewell. Excellent. Speaking of not talking to the FBI, watch that one on the plane. Richard Jewell, excellent movie. 
highly, highly recommend. Uh, and it's a reminder, the FBI, I know there, there's some FBI agents who listen to this show, and thank you for locking up, you know, cartel members and child molesters and other important things. But when investigations get politicized and there's political pressure, you know, the big FBI cannot be trusted. Can't trust them. Can't trust them. Uh, let me just look at Comey and and Strzok and Page. And we've seen this now. We, we, did I not talk today about the wiping of the phones? I just realized I didn't talk about the with producer Mark. Did I talk about the phone wiping? I don't okay. think so. Oh, boy. Well, let me do that right now. Sorry, we're going to we're going to put a pause in the roll call. So here's what happened. Judicial Watch came out and said that they they got uh, documents that proved that it, I think it was 27 phones from the Mueller investigation either lost, wiped clean or just destroyed beyond repair from people working on the Mueller probe. OK, and as we all know, Mueller was like a figurehead, wasn't even really running it. The guy had deteriorated. It was really gross what they did. It was like. It was like elder abuse to pretend that guy was running the, the probe, just like it would be like elder abuse if Joe Biden were made president. But if you believe, if you believe that over two dozen highly trained federal investigators in the most politically sensitive investigation of our lifetime, if you believe that they accidentally typed in the wrong code on their iPhone 10 times, causing it to entirely wipe itself clean, you probably also believe that Jussie Smollett was attacked by MAGA hat wearers at 1 a.m. on a freezing cold Chicago night, and they just happened to have a noose handy. You know, if you believe one, you probably believe the other. And if you believe them both, you are a dumbass, right? We know this. There is absolutely no way that those phones were wiped by accident. Not plausible. It's not wiped, lost, cracked. This was destroying comms after the fact. This is destruction of evidence in order to prevent the American people from seeing what kind of political targeting was really going on here. What was really happening as a result of all of this? Now we'll never know. Just like I've been telling you, don't expect anybody important to go to jail because of the Durham probe. I was right about that. We're going to I mean, we don't know I'm right yet, but you're going to. Eventually, I'm going to say to you, oh, I told you guys the Durham probe didn't didn't really do anything. And it's not the fault of Barr. It's not the fault of Durham. It's not even the DOJ. It's the system, because as long as, oh, I didn't make that mistake on purpose for political reasons. I'm just the dumbest person on Earth. As long as that's an excuse for any bureaucrat who works for the federal government, there will be no accountability. And trust me, my friends, that is the excuse they will continue to fall back on. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, now back into the roll call. James. So Trump told Bob Woodward, a reporter, that COVID was bad. And Woodward, a reporter, hid the information instead of reporting it, perhaps letting thousands die so he could later use it to hurt Trump's reelection. Nice. Shields high, Buck. Producer Mark, I think we actually have Trump agreeing with exactly that point from our friend Andy. Can we play that? If Bob Woodward thought what I said was bad, 
then he should have immediately, right after I said it, gone out to the authorities so they can prepare and let him know. But he didn't think it was bad, and he said he didn't think it was bad. He actually said he didn't think it was bad. The only one that said it was bad or thinks it was bad were the fake news media because they take it and they try and put it a certain way. If Bob Woodward thought it was bad, then he should have immediately gone out publicly, not wait four months. You know, he's had that statement for four months, maybe five months. He's had it for a long time. Why didn't he? Why didn't he go forward and say that? Well, because it wasn't really that terrible, because it wasn't terrible at all, because he understood at the time what the president said, but he also knew that he could use it to sell books later on and be a hero to the resistance. And that's what really mattered to him. Andy, next up here, Buck, you and the wonderful producer Mark need to leave NYC before the election. We don't want to worry about you all the day after. You two are the best ever, even better than the great rush. Well, Andy, that's very, very kind of you, and we appreciate that. Don't worry about us. I'll, I'll, producer Mark will keep me safe. You know, if, if the mob forms outside my building, producer Mark, I'll just put him on speakerphone on my phone, and he will frighten them with his grouchiness, and they will all run for cover. Yeah, and that sounds like, like a great plan. Yeah, that's like your superpower. You know what I mean? You're going like to tell, tell them all that they're running late again and that they forgot about another client meeting and they're all going to be very upset and go away. If only life was so simple. Yeah, just saying. It's producer Mark's magic power. Um, next up here, Kristen, hearing you sing the Mentos jingle made me actually laugh. Thanks for the memories. Man, yeah, they used to have. Okay, producer Mark, what was your favorite commercial jingle from way back in the day? Do you remember? Do you remember one? Huh. I mean, you top of the head favorite? comes Kit Kat. I was gonna say, give me a break, give me a break. I think that may have been the most. That thing burrowed deep into your brain, like you know, one of those uh, amoeba that eats your brain. That's really scary, but you know what I mean. It has to go way in there. What about the Bagel Bites commercial? What was that one? I don't remember it off the top of my head. Like, I don't remember the words, but I remember kind of like the jingle. I can try to play it. Hold on. Do you remember the dog that was like, take a bite out of crime? I remember that guy. That was the whole thing. I think that was a cartoon. Yeah, it was. Hey, take a bite out of crime. Take a bite out of the Buck Sexton show, everybody, and share it with someone over the weekend. Pass the buck. Spotify, iHeart app, Apple podcast. Share it with a friend this weekend. They'll love you for it until Monday. Shields high.